Morning, everybody. All right. So, Acts chapter four. That's, I think, where we left off. Is that right, Dan? Right. All right. Well, whether you left off there or not, this is where we're going to be today. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll get started. Uh, in um, In the first part of Acts chapter 3, we remember this was the, the big event. Peter and John says in verse 1, we're going up to the temple, it's important, up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and a man who was lame from birth was being carried, and we heard the story of this man being healed. And then, subsequent to this, uh, there's a, a big sermon, and and um, uh, Peter is speaking there uh, in the temple. And then as we wrapped up last week, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And as they were speaking, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And as... Um, you probably heard the Sadducees, which were uh, the part of the ruling elite. These were the elite of the elite. Um, the Sanhedrin, you've heard people talk about, um, 70 people, 71 counting the high priest. Uh, there were some Pharisees there um, who were um, a little more popular with the, with the people. They weren't quite the upper crust. The Sadducees were, were definitely the ruling party, but the interesting thing about the Sadducees, again, as you may have heard, they did not believe that there was such a thing as resurrection. So they had these guys preaching the resurrection of the dead, and to put it mildly, they were greatly annoyed. And in verse 3, and they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So here they are in the temple. And to say they had gathered a crowd was a bit of an understatement. Must have been a, a big crowd. If, if, even, if, even if all the people that were there got saved or, or came to believe in Jesus, that was 5,000. There may have been others there who left curious or maybe not convinced or uh, were to ponder things later or maybe who just simply didn't believe so there may have even been more than 5,000 there but many it says many of those who had heard the word believe so it leads me to believe that there were some who didn't and the number of the men who came to be about 5,000 that is just a lot so we're going to pick up in verse 5 and it says on the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Uh, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were of the high priestly family. Now Annas wasn't the high priest at this time but was kind of like a godfather figure right he had been high priest then there were 
others in his family who had been high priests. So off and on for 20 or 30 years, they were the high priestly family. Now, there was some father-to-son succession that went on. Uh, this was the way the, the high priests uh, were done. Of course, to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi and so forth. But um, I guess since we're talking about Father's Day, uh, fathers certainly have an influence. And if you've got godly fathers, you're probably going to get godly influence. If you've got a corrupt father, then you're probably going to have corrupt influence. And that was the case with all these people that Luke is so careful to call out. They're all the high priestly family. And if you look at the family tree, there's five or six of them that have been in and around all this leadership. Uh, and at this day and age, how you got to be the high priest was basically um, King Herod. Was Herod the nice, pious Jew? No. Was Herod a corrupt Roman that wanted to kill anybody who didn't agree with him? Yes. These people were in leadership because they were super cozy with the Romans. And Herod appointed a number of high priests in his day, including these folks. So they were there not because they were God's people, but because basically they were paid off by the Romans. And they were in charge of kind of keeping the peace and and put you know, so this kind of explains why they had such a problem with Jesus, because the Romans probably said, Hey, you know, you guys there was this very inappropriately close relationship with the Romans. So anyway, these are the people who have put Peter and John into prison. And in verse 7 it says, And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Now the this refers to healing this beggar who had been lame from birth. It said, How did you do this? By whose name did you do this? Then Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So he's clarifying the question. That's always good practice to, to be clear as to what it is you're answering. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so far they're probably okay. They, they kind of knew this was coming. They knew that Jesus was involved, but now it's going to get personal. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So this is probably not what they were hoping to hear. In fact, it makes you wonder, what, what really were they hoping to hear? I mean, they had heard, I'm sure, the sermon. They had had spies in the group, I'm sure, had told them what they had been preaching. I don't really know what they were expecting. I guess maybe just bringing them up, throwing them in jail overnight. They thought maybe that would soften them up a little bit, and they would kind of cower away. Maybe that's what they were hoping. But it doesn't go well, and it doesn't go well right from the start. First of all, they're talking about Jesus again. Now, they were hoping this whole Jesus thing would blow over, remember? They were, 
they were really, you know, let's you know, let's pay off Judas, let's let's get rid of him, let's crucify him, let's you know, get the Romans to do our dirty work, and let's hope this whole thing blows over. Well, apparently that didn't work. And so not only are they talking about Jesus, they're talking about the resurrection, which they don't believe. So how can how can they handle this? It's just not going well. This Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So if you put your finger in Acts and you flip back over to Psalm 118, and you don't have to do this, but you can write Psalm 118 next to your um, the verses there. Uh, Psalm 118, 22. And this was well considered by the Jews to be referring to the Messiah. So this is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Um, on the, the immediate um, uh, purpose for this particular psalm is celebrating uh, God's faithfulness with a, a victory, but um, it, was, it was well known to the scholars of the day that this was referring to the future temple. And here we have this very clever use of the term, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this would not have been good either. Now, more recently, to those who had heard Jesus speak, if you turn back to Luke chapter 20, Luke is kind of quoting himself in a way and certainly quoting Jesus. Let's see where I want to start here. Yeah, um, I'm not sure where to start. Okay, so go back to, uh, in Luke 20, beginning with verse 1, it says, One day as Jesus was teaching, in the pe teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes, well, the elders came up to him. So this is the same group of people, right? The same group of people. And they start to quiz him, you know, uh, what about the baptism of John and so forth. They were trying to trick him up. And then he launches off into this parable about the man who had the vineyard and he sent the servants to tend the vineyard but the people that were renting it beat up the servants so then he sent somebody else and then ultimately he sends his son verse 13 says the owner of the vineyard said what shall I do I'm going to send my son perhaps they will respect him but the tenants saw him and said to themselves this is the heir let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants, etc. And 
it says when they heard this now the we that's the chief priests and scribes and so forth they said surely not but he looked that is Jesus directly at them and says what then is this that is written the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone so he's saying you don't think this is true you don't think this is what's going to happen then what does this verse mean and he goes on to offer his own interpretation it says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him so now just what how many weeks six or seven weeks later maybe eight or ten weeks later this same verse is being thrown up to them you don't think they remembered that you don't think they remember Jesus quoting this and saying oh by the way this cornerstone it's gonna bust you up everyone who falls in the stone so they were clearly threatened right we got people preaching the resurrection we don't believe in the resurrection we got people in our house that we essentially bought and paid for with the Romans these people in our house teaching the resurrection which we do not believe and now in the back of my mind I'm remembering Jesus talked about that it wasn't going to go well for these people who didn't recognize the cornerstone anyway verse 12 you get the idea Peter goes on and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved classic verse Acts 4 12 um, and in this day of pluralism and you know where the world tends to rank all the various uh, religions equally and they just wonder at the arrogance of Christians who say there's just one name this is this is the verse this this is the only name there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name by which we must be saved verse 13 well let me say one thing true Christianity is almost always going to annoy the ruling elite right true Christianity is almost always going to annoy those who are in power because all the things about getting into power are not classically the way that Christianity works right doesn't mean you can't have Christian leaders that's not what I'm saying but most people in power would see authentic Christianity as somewhat of a threat the backroom deals the negotiations the bribes the influence peddling the I scratch your back you scratch mine all the way that we know politics works the messiness of it it's going to take a really strong devout person to navigate that and and be a true believer and for those of our leaders who are Christians uh, more and more they would need our prayer to navigate this in a way that's upright and honest now the corollary to that statement 
that is that true Christianity is always going to annoy the elite. The corollary is true Christianity is almost never going to be the ruling elite. Right? If we're hoping for a day when America is going to all be Christian and everything's going to be right because we've got Christian leaders, that's just not the way it works. That's never happened. It's just not the way it works. So we pray for our leaders, but our faith is in God, not in our leaders. As much as we want to support them, you get that idea. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I came across this little story that makes the point. It says, uh, Jennifer was teaching some basic geography to a class of eight-year-olds and they were studying Australia. They had just drawn a rough map together. They had worked out when the, where the main cities were. And then Jennifer asked the class, if anyone could say what sort of things most people in Australia did. Some people said swimming. <laughs> yes, but most people don't make a living by swimming. And some people said barbecuing. <laughs> yes, they do that, but that's just how people cook their food. Where do they get the money in the first place? And a little girl in the back said, a long time ago nearly all the Australians worked on farms. They looked after sheep and cattle and they grew all sorts of crops. Nowadays, people in the big cities do all sorts of other things, too, like business and making cars and so forth. But still, a large number of Australians are farmers, and the further you go inland, the more likely you are to find them running farms. And the whole class looked at the little girl who had spoken so confidently, and they, the teacher said, how did you learn all that? We just started studying Australia today. Did you read a book about it? She said, no. But I used to live there. My dad used to run a cattle farm with several thousand cows, and I knew all about it from as soon as I could talk. Some of the best learning doesn't come from a book or even from good teachers. Experience can be the best teacher. And Peter and John didn't have a lot of book learning, if they had any. But they were with Jesus. And even the Sanhedrin, it says, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. That was, it was still startling to them how they could, you know, pull this phrase out of Psalm 118 and use it to their purpose and great rhetoric skill, but they couldn't explain it except that they had been with Jesus. Verse 14, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, which made me wonder Maybe the man was so grateful that he was healed that he said, hey, I'll, I'll witness for you. But it got me to wondering, maybe they just threw him in jail too. I don't know. Um, but he was there the day after. Um, I'm kind of thinking he might have been thrown in jail too, but that's just my guess. Uh, verse 15, it says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another. So they sent them away, and now they're talking amongst themselves. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. So their first strategy, you know, they, it was like they all assumed 
let's just realize that we would like it if this didn't happen, but we can't use that strategy because everybody knows now. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further, let us warn them not to speak to no more to anyone in his name. So they call them back in. They charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they're just going to threaten them. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all they all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Um, now, later in Acts, we're going to realize they figure out a way to, to punish. Um, but right, right now, they couldn't think of anything other than uh, some threats. Um, one point here, it says in uh, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them. We assume as we read this whole passage that it's all Peter. But John got arrested too, and they were both speaking, and apparently parts of this he was speaking up as well, so um, he was certainly there supporting. And one commentator said, um, "He said, but Peter and John answered them like, like almost at the same time, like they were both kind of saying the same thing together, almost in unison, uh, which I think uh, is interesting." Verse twenty-three. But when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, your ho I'm sorry, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So I thought it was interesting um, to think who was it that was doing the praying? We have this wonderful prayer, very specific prayer that really pulled together everything that the early church was going through so who was praying? The church was praying. You can get lost in the pronouns here, but in verse 23 it says, when they were released, that is all those, you know, Peter and John and um, the lame man at least, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. So who was doing the hearing? Their friends, right? The, the, the assembly, the church. 
So they are the ones who heard the report, and they were the ones that started praying. So I don't know if this was like a circular prayer, or it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and we know the Holy Spirit is all about unity, whether the Holy Spirit gave them all the exact simultaneous words. How cool would that have been? Um, to just start praying. And I think that's really interesting but in verse 31 it says and when they had prayed and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit so I don't know if this is unison prayer or circular prayer or one was leading their prayer but it looks like it was someone other than Peter and John so I, I just think that's really cool um, so how do we what do we take from this prayer which is really cool I think one thing that's interesting, it says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So we're starting to get an idea of what true Christianity in the age of the church is. And one of the features of this is that the church recognizes that God is the source of their blessing. God is the source of their victory. So their first immediate response was, well, praise God. Praise God. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together. They're going to praise God. And then secondly, which I think is interesting, they start talking about God's sovereignty. Now, a lot of times when we talk about God's sovereignty, it's usually because we have this weird logic of accusation that we're tossing at God. God, if you're so much in charge of everything, then why am I having to deal with X, Y, Z? If you're so sovereign, why did so-and-so die? If you're so sovereign, why have you not healed my fill-in-the-blank? If you're so sovereign, why... You know, we kind of toss this sovereignty up to God, at least many people do, as if it is all about us. Well, the whole point of God's sovereignty is that it's not about us, right? But look at them. They don't, they don't toss all this up and say, so why are you persecuting us? Or, God, why did you put them in jail overnight? They say, you know, all this is going on, and all these people are gathered together against Jesus. And, but then it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I said, you know what? All this was part of your plan. And they recognized that they themselves were part of God's plan. And they said, you know what we're going to pray? In verse 29, those threats that were made, Just take away those threats, Lord. Just take them away. We don't want to deal with those threats and those accusations. Is that what they prayed? No. They said, you know what? Let's crank it up a notch. Let's help us to speak your word with all boldness. And let's keep healing. Because that's what got them all hot and bothered. So we want to do more of that. We want more healing, not less. And this thing that they want to know, how did we do it? 
we want to do it through the name of your holy servant Jesus we're all about Jesus and the interesting thing very quickly you know we've we hear the influence of the Holy Spirit in these first few chapters right because we haven't met the Holy Spirit very much before and Jesus said hang out the Holy Spirit's going to come going to teach you but very quickly we see the shift start to happen and when we hear about Acts when we hear about the church but the Acts is the book of Acts is really about what people are doing in the name of Jesus it's all about Jesus really so very quickly that comes on In verse 31, when they had prayed and the place that they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we've talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this, this baptism that was kind of a, um, a special uh, introduction, so to speak, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and that came upon the believers at Pentecost. Of course, we talked about that. Um, we know that this was kind of a one-off thing that happened and that we have other texts in scripture that says when we get saved when we accept Christ as our Savior then the Holy Spirit comes inside us right now Ephesians talks about that we receive the Holy Spirit right then so what is this feeling of the Holy Spirit is that something extra is that something Oh, you know, that's when we start to speak in tongues and so forth. No, it's they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians uh, verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of the Spirit. Just like you could be under the influence of wine, he says, no, I, don't want you, I want you to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So that's what this means when it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were open and receptive to what the Holy Spirit was going to do, and they were submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit's influence so they could do what needed to happen. Several other things you could talk about um, this prayer. Certainly, when you are threatened, when you are persecuted for doing things in the name of Jesus um, it does sharpen your prayer life it does make you want to pray more because you do recognize that there are other powers out there that uh, you need support against um, that's certainly true um, a lot of things you could you could get out of that um, but certainly prayer and praise and asking you know they had received the great commission right does it sound like they have bought into the purpose of the mission? Does it sound like they're kind of committed? I think they. I think they're definitely. Um, they're definitely committed. Uh, let me pause there and see if there are any other comments that came, or thoughts that came that you want to comment on, as we kind of walk through these verses. The power of a church praying can be awesome. Absolutely. Thank you, Pat.
Let me close with this one thought, which I thought was uh, interesting. Uh, the the seed of this thought came from a commentate, uh, commentary from a, uh, an English monk back in around 700 and something A.D. Apparently he's, uh, he's called the father of English history, but it says he was also a scholar. And he, he, he thought about how this particular miracle kind of paralleled where the state of Israel was. And I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase kind of what I think he was trying to say. And it does take us back to Exodus that Daddy was talking about. If you think about the first time that Moses brought the nation of Israel right up to the edge and looking out onto the promised land. And it was theirs a gift. All they had to do was go take it. But they didn't want it. So they wandered around for 40 years. Here, Peter and John are showing the religious elite the ultimate promised land, Jesus, who had healed a guy that had been walking around limping for how many years? 40 years. And in essence, the Sanhedrin wished that he was still limping. They would rather just keep on limping than accept the promised land that they were on the brink of. And I think this monk was really probably onto something. There's so many parallels in scripture, but I had certainly not ever made that connection. But I thought that's a pretty cool connection there. And it leads to the question, you know, to what extent do we fail to take some of the promises of Jesus because we'd rather keep doing things that are familiar and comfortable and maybe because we don't have the boldness that we need to have. Uh, I guess that's a good place to stop. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We we thank you that you're a good father and that we have Jesus as a result of your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you for Luke and the words that we have to study. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, bring to life the, uh, the word that is in us and give us the boldness that we have to, uh, to be true Christians in this very unchristian world. And we thank you uh, for your son in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.